Probably science. I'm Matt Kirshen. We're on the road. We're at, there's no Andy. We're we're recording straight into the Zoom recorder. So there's a slight echo. I'm joined by special guest co-host and former guest on the show, Alice Fraser. <laughs> well, you say we're on the road. We're on a couch. We're on the couch. Uh, you might uh, have heard Alice on our show, or you might have heard me on Alice's show, Tea with Alice. Or your brand new show. Uh, the Last Post. Produced by The Bugle. Yeah, it's presented by The Bugle. It's quite exciting uh, to have John Oliver's voice being saying my name at the beginning of a show. Uh, but of course, it is not technically my podcast. What happened was, I was I've always been interested in like science fiction and fantasy. I've always been interested in the news and I wanted to do something that was a mashup. But I was too busy. Conveniently enough, there's been a glitch in my email that um, is into an alternate universe. Oh, I hate it when that happens. Isn't, yeah. that such, isn't that the worst? So I'm getting files from another Alice Fraser in another dimension oh, where Alice. she does a daily show. <laughs> and it's amazing. She's really good. It's really funny. Well, I that is, that is fortunate, it. given because <laughs> that could have gone the other way. That could have been a horrible disaster. And it's so lucky that that turned out. So the last post is... Yep, it's a, it's a daily show that I don't have to work incredibly hard So my apologies for saying that that was you hosting it, when in fact <laughs> it's the other Alice Fraser, who is not in the show right now. And we are in the living room of... I Again, we've, we've talked about having you on the show so many times, but this is comedian, improviser, actor, someone you may have seen on the Comedy Store Players, or Whose Lines It Anyway, or a bunch of radio shows with the likes of Paul Merton and all sorts... Uh, it's the lovely Mr. Richard Ranch. Thank you very much. It's great to be on. It's it's lovely to have you. We, we've multiple times I've tried and considered like, getting you on the show at Glastonbury because that's normally where we see each other at the Glastonbury Festival. Like, oh, just do a quick podcast with Richard Ranch at Glastonbury, and then Glastonbury happens, and then we pack up the car at the end and drive home, <laughs> realizing that it was an absurd thought to have even considered trying it, to get. It's very difficult to organise even meeting, let alone recording at Glastonbury. It's exactly. Very, it's, it's easy to miss people in the uh, in the fog. The closest you manage to like, may I might see you at the, uh, see you at this band? Uh, managing a tea, maybe, like from shaky hands uh, in the early hours. But the reason I want, I've wanted you on the show for so long, aside from the fact that, you know, your, your pedigree as a comedian and improviser is... You were at one point on a different path, a physics-y path. Well, that's right. I mean, it's weird. A lot of... To be honest, although you've been very kind in your your introduction, almost everybody knows me as as the piano guy from Whose Line, which which is odd for me because I've I've never really identified as a musician or indeed made made my living out of it. But but it's true, I did used to play the keyboards on Whose Line, but that's because I'm an improviser and I kind of... I knew because I'm an improviser what was required. I certainly wasn't a good musician if you put a really good musician on there it would have been awful it would have looked smug and clever and inaccessible and right um you know, rather ex- someone who knows ex- when to come in ex- at the ex- right ex- moment to... yeah it just just even if you just go plonk that plonk if it's timed properly because you know the comedy of it is much more important than something terribly impressive musically that only three other people mm-hmm. uh, one of whom is john sessions can understand <laughs> so so um, so so that is true though you're right but even before um my early edinburgh festival days which was back in 79 at the fringe i was a physics student and um went on to do a phd which gave me the opportunity to spend even more time doing student comedy and i had a double act with tony <laughs> slattery back in 1981 and then me and tony slattery auditioned for the footlights in 81 as a double act we were called iris murdoch versus the smog monster <laughs> and I mean, you don't even need to explain. You obviously don't need to explain why that was the case. That's no, pretty no. self-explanatory. Yeah. It was like that in those days. And so we auditioned for the like, So, so I, I kind of went into into comedy and my double act with Tony and feminist cabaret with the Millies and then the comedy store players. That was all in the 80s. But being a, a PhD student at Cambridge doing physics gave me the time to, to, to keep doing open spots and try out and fail. And that's, that's the advantage. In those days, the reason why there were so many uh, university groups in Edinburgh and so many medical societies and that sort of thing is because they literally had a platform they had societies at university where they could go on and try stuff out and if it was crap it was crap but but if it was good it was good and it was only when the comedy store opened and the other comedy clubs that gave a platform to people who didn't go to university and there's a whole generation that came in and that's where the London comedy circuit came from with the addition of the street performers who came indoors that that, that was your three groups that came together uh, so so was, was your reason 
your reason for doing that PhD as much so that you could just spend an extra few years at university and therefore carry on larking about on stage and learning your craft that way. No, it was much worse than that. Go on. I fancied a girl who was staying on. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I used to do athletics. (laughs) I I ran three marathons. I trained six days a week for two years just because I showed up to pick up my brother from training one day and this guy was there. (laughs) Yeah, I I did sort of... It was a sort of brief... uh, success with that with that venture but then we you know we all came out it, it, it all happened like it happened in the end but yeah so I did stay on for the worst of reasons then spent the time doing cabarets and that's why it took me four years not three to finish the thing but I did finish it so I'm very proud of having doctor on my credit so- card and for <laughs> nine months I actually worked as an academic I, I worked at, I went over to Oxford and worked as a fellow of St John's College in the Electrical engineering department. Well, then let's 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 jump back and work through that because that because this is a comedy but also science podcast and fundamentally science. So let's. I, I know specifics from several decades ago might be too hard to dredge up, but what first? There must have been something initially that pushed you towards doing physics at university above other subjects. Yes, I think it was because it was laziness, I'm afraid. I could do it. I've always had a sort of um, a mathsy kind of brain, and if you have, that's a curse and it's a blessing. And I, I, I think my but, background... But that, that also makes sense, because I, I did a maths degree, and that you tell people that when you then do comedy, like, oh, that's weird. And you're, it's actually substantially less weird than you think it is. There's it. There is actually a big... There's a lot of comedians and comedy writers a surprising number who have maths or physics backgrounds and it's it's there is a definite crossover in the brain pattern and mental leaps that it takes to construct a joke that are very similar to the ones it takes to solve a physics problem or a or prove a form prove a theorem yeah i think that's right particularly the simpsons um very well known that they have a lot of maths and physics grads writing they do. for them. And Simon Singh has written a very good book I about the math book. stuff in, in, in Simpsons. But yeah, you're right that there is there is a formula to comedy. Um, or multiple formulae. Yeah, multiple formulae. And, and you look at sort of some of the you know classic um, punsters like Gary Delaney or so you can sort of see that you can sort of work it backwards from the punchline and every single element that goes into the setup that produces that beautiful, hilarious punchline, and it works uh-huh. rhythmically, and it works conceptually. It's almost like a perfect mathematical equation. It's like this element, this uh, side thought, this parallel image equals. Oh God, it's funny. Right, and mathematicians will, particularly pure mathematicians, will talk about elegance of proofs and theorems. They, they, they will. Uh, an elegant one is something that is surprisingly concise and sometimes surprising, but just. The, the sort of more concise and neater and also surprising and curious the way they come to prove a certain idea, the the better, the nicer it is. Yeah, I think there's also something about um, surprise. As often right. comedy laughter comes from surprise. You can even see this when you see magicians doing card tricks for apes. Right. The, 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 the animals are just surprised, you know, where, where the hell has the, has the golf ball gone onto the cups or something? And there's a reaction that even goes across species. Now, if you're a scientist, and you know that uh, A plus B equals C. If you can construct A plus B equals F, right. you've immediately got a joke because everyone's expecting C. So, so there's something but about in the, such lo- a way the that, logic. But in such a way that after it's been done, you could peep, the people who hear it look back and go like, oh no, but of course it actually equals F. Of, of course, you're not... Because it doesn't make sense to go A plus B equals banana. That annoys people, but... It, but I mean, depending with- on the context. But he, like this is an interesting... I was a lawyer uh, before I became a comedian or parallel to my continuing to be do comedy from university and that's sort of like the maths of or the science of people and right. the ways in which people interact and the ways in which you'll draft a contract are very similar to the ways that you would program a computer program it's very if this then that if not this then that and it's a it's a like this chat reminds me of my favorite hack evolutionary biology theory about comedy have I told you this? Why no, you haven't. What's that? Okay, so uh, I love a I love a hack evolutionary biology theory. <laughs> uh, very much sort of retrospectively making things make sense. But the idea there is, is a lot of that in it because we've had some sort of evolutionary biologists and then critics or people coming at evolutionary biology from a different angle, and there is definitely a lot of sort of 
finding the thing to fit the preconceived notion. Oh yes, like the reason that so many white men are successful in Silicon Valley despite there being no barrier to entry is because white men are inherently superior or white men tend to have parents with garages. <laughs> right. Mm. Uh, so that they can do their stupid startup for however many years it takes. Uh, but the evolutionary biology theory of comedy is that it is a reward from your brain for noticing and reconciling a cognitive dissonance. So that you think the world is one way, you realise it's another, and, and your brain rewards you for realising that it's not what you thought it was. Right. So you had an assumption, the assumption is revised, and your brain rewards you with laughter. But this is an interesting thing when it comes to rhetoric, which is my super uh, like area of obsession, which is that in that moment after you've reconciled the difference, you go, oh, where are my glasses? Oh, they're on my head. Ha, 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 ha. And then your brain goes, why did I have that wrong? Okay. And so you are more open to learning when you have laughed than, than in other contexts, which is why satirical comedy news shows are so influential, which is why you make a joke at the beginning of a speech, which is why people right. like you more if, if they laugh. Uh, anyway, so I love that theory. I have no sense of how provable it is, but I, it delights I can, me. I can see, and again, this is someone with, with zero evolutionary psychology background either, but um, I can see how the other reason you... Uh, another reason why a speech works at the beginning uh, sorry laugh works at the beginning of a speech is or a lecture or whatever is because comedy is part of a sort of social contract comedy is a way of connecting with people and showing that you're on the same team uh and bonding with people so the laugh at the beginning allows people to go like oh he's in our clan yes she's part of our tribe we should therefore listen to this person do their I think it, making people laugh, it, p- people like laughing, is almost like giving them a, a little, you know, corner of drugs or something. You're, right. you're actually bribing them to stay, keep listening to you with the facts and the other stuff you want to get under the radar. Here's is some it, free dopamine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. a lot of my comedy works in that transactional way, particularly with shows like Savage, where I was like, how much do I have to make you laugh there before I can punch you in the face <laughs> with, like, some brutal, terrible truth? Like, it was really mechanistic in that way of figuring out how much I had to make people laugh that they would keep listening to this terrible story I was telling. <laughs> well, that's, that was true. I, I mentioned earlier, though, you, if, if you cut that, then I didn't mention earlier. <laughs> no, we, we almost... Ne- <laughs> the only time we ever cut is if there's a technical flub or if someone afterwards goes, uh, uh, actually, can you just cut that yeah, thing out? Yeah, where, where, where I confessed to those murders. Exactly. <laughs> oh, <laughs> audio strip show. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mentioned earlier the Millies, which I was very privileged to be in the Millies because it was three amazing women writer-performers and me, initially piano player, but then we all wrote and performed together as a foursome. And uh, Joanne Wynn and Karen Leddy and Donna McPhail were all and still are all amazing female writer-performers. And, um, they, they, you know, obviously we've all gone our different ways, but that was a show, you know, the, the F word feminism was mentioned and, uh, and we were doing shows about the way women were portrayed in women's magazines. The first was a sketch show where every sketch was a page or a section of women's magazine from front cover to small ads. And then the second show was more about breaking the law and women under threat and whatever. But those, they were brilliantly well written, particularly by, by Joan and Caroline and, 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 and Donna. But there was definitely a message. This was still a new thing to kind of put something a bit political in, in, into what was cabaret. And, um, and you're right, making people laugh along the way was a really good way of making people listen to, uh, to, to uh, your your view of how things might not be quite as good as they should be, and so on. Uh, and, you know, obviously, those problems haven't gone away. Right. Well, they. Think... I was really hoping we'd sorted it all out, but no. <laughs> but, um, but... I don't think those problems will ever fully go away. They just adapt and change uh, and no, spawn so new problems. But 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 then again, well, that was weird because um, back then. We... The fact that women have the audacity to do that was still slightly shocking to some of the establishment. Right. You know? And certainly, if if women swore even a tiny bit, they were criticised for it, whereas men could do as much as they want. And I think that's still the case now. I think women, my, my women don't get away Cal with it. Cal Wilson was on the radio and she said, uh, fuck, once, and got so many complaints into the ABC in the context of a show in which the two male co-hosts had sworn, I think she said, 36 times. Right. And no complaints on what they had yeah, said. So, yeah. it, I mean... Yeah, it is a fascinating uh, world, and I, I certainly um, get that sometimes. That kind of oh, I can't believe you swore 
theme. But in terms of getting um, a, a, you know, a, a more important message over through comedy, and I was, so I was very privileged to work with, with, uh, with those three back when I did, very, very privileged. The thing, connection with science here is that there is now a great deal of entertaining science stuff out there. There's Infinite Monkey Cage, your own podcast. We are writing so their cocktails to everything Dara does on, on TV. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, and it, it's, it, it is a really lovely thing, and there are... I'm, I am happy about that, and even, even if it's sort of just being used as a, in certain cases, just like, oh, here's another thing that we can do jokes about, you're still slipping information and ideas through, mm-hmm. and maybe, you know, younger people listening to it. Uh, we've had a couple of people, sort of younger listeners, who've sort of written and go like, I'm doing science at university now, and I listened to you when I was at school, like, oh dear, oh, you shouldn't have been, but thank you. <laughs> oh, that's uh, that's but, really nice, it's, it's but, nice, I mean, we... Um, but, uh, I had a science series on Channel 4 in uh, in 94 called Beat That Einstein, sort of a challenge thing where members of the public were given a shed full of junk and had to do something seemingly impossible with it, but they could if they thought about it. And I was the kind of host, well, of course, what they're doing there is Bernoulli's equation. Right. And, all that, and, and, and it, was, it was kind of an, an early way of trying to make it entertaining to get the message through. And it only lasted this series. It got recommissioned with a thing called um, Scrap Peep Challenge, which is kind of a similar oh, idea. Yeah. But that succeeded. It was much, much more successful and better. But it's but I haven't really done much science in terms of my comedic stuff. I do stand-up. And I do some sciencey stuff sort of in stand-up. Um, you, know, think, you know, give us an H. And they go, H, what have you got? And they're confused. You know, Hydrogen. <laughs> which, you know, cue lots of periodic table jokes. But, I mean, that's quite nice. Because, I mean... What you mustn't do, I think, is make people feel thick. Mm. If if you are being too smug and, and intellectual with what you know and make the audience feel inferior, they're not going to laugh at you. They're just going to hate you, and quite right too. So if you're going to do sciencey stuff... But if you it, can it, make it, them laugh enough, then you can make them feel smart. Yeah, yeah. exactly right. So the fact Because getting a joke yeah. is... A, uh, we, all, we also, on, on this show, uh, Andy and I uh, help make our audience not feel thick by getting a lot of things wrong ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's easy to do. Well, so, so, yeah. Isn't that the point of science? We get a, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah I, think, I think the point of science is to get things wrong at like, the cutting edge of discovery. You know, <laughs> rather than get things wrong that are just like, no, that's actually... You no, I've got to question your assumptions <laughs> yeah. from the very basis level. No, that's, that's <laughs> not even the continent that river is on. Well, I, I really Probably science. We, we do get some. We, it is lovely that we do have real scientists who write in and go like, "Actually, this is this is what's going on." And bless you for doing that and being patient enough with us. Um, so, you, but, so, but just, just to say, but I, I stick to very very basic grounds. So after, uh-huh. after mentioning hydrogen, I then follow the follow up with give us an H, give us an E, what have we got? And they do shout helium. And yeah. I say, God, you're brilliant. Well, <laughs> And so it's good to sort of let them know, yeah, that's all I know. Don't worry, we're on the same page of this very elementary thing. So let's delve more into what you do know, though. So you did your, you did your undergrad physics. Hmm. Did you then have to do like a master's or an MPhil or something? before, Or did you just run straight into the PhD? Well, it, this was Cambridge, so, it, um, so the rules are slightly different. I'm sorry to say I benefited from that privilege. At Cambridge, for example, they don't off, they don't award science degrees. You, they only award arts degrees. So, right. so I've got a BA in in, in science. Na- natural sciences, which is upgraded to an MA, um, simply by just waiting. Yeah. But then I, I kind of earned it by spending the subsequent four and a half years doing a PhD at the Cavendish Laboratory, which is one of those kind of famous labs where you you know you bumping into Nobel Prize winners constantly at tea and all that sort of thing, right, this which post, was marvellous fun. And there's a little plaques up thing, like, oh, you know, in this lab here, Rutherford was knocking around. Oh, exactly. Well, there's always an annual sort of team photograph of all the research students and all the staff, and, and they're up there over uh, on the wall in, upstairs, and so you can sort of see this young Ernest Rutherford, and he's sort of getting older and hairier, then he's Dr Rutherford, then he becomes... Professor, and then he's Lord, and then of course he disappears. So that kind of reminds you that actually the life what, cycle yeah. of a Rutherford. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like that, and it's nice to be in in some of those pictures. I hope they're still up. I'm sure they are still looking around. I'm sure they're in the department. If we, if we have any young Cambridge physicists listening to, or a Cambridge research physicists listening to this show. Uh, send us a picture and we'll tweet yeah. it out. But, uh, and I'm, I'm the one with the worst haircut, which is saying something. <laughs> well, as a university physicist, that is a remarkable achievement. Yeah. That would be from 1980 to 84. But it, it, it was um, great to be there. But then you, you forget how important and big things are because when you meet the bloke that did it, it's just a bloke. Right. Or a girl. It was mostly blokes in those days, I have to say. And then, uh, so what was, the, what was the topic of your PhD? Right. Um, it's 
the actual title is Defects in Irradiated MOS Structures. MOS structures are metal oxide silicon. That's the basic silicon switch on a, on a silicon chip. Each little logic gate is a, is, is a little you know, transistor. Okay. And that's metal oxide and silicon. That's what it's made of. That's how they're etched and, and manufactured. But if radiation from a bomb or from space or just that's hanging around goes through that silicon chip, it can cause a really nasty defect on the interfaces, the surfaces, the interfaces are where all the interesting things happen in general, in life, and in physics too. And, and, and so the bonds get broken and they stop working or they work strangely. Now, they discovered this years ago when the early transistors they sent up into space on the early satellites like Telstar, they only lasted about a week because it was packed up because above the atmosphere, all the radiation is very strong because it's not, you know, the Earth's surface is protected by the... And so... so right, space... so it doesn't have, like, the ionosphere and things like... Yeah, well, the, uh, the ionosphere... Is it the ionosphere? Well, it's the actual it's atmosphere. It's why computers break down more often in Australia because we have no ozone like That's a lie. I'm just lying. <laughs> oh, it's just not a lie now. Just it's because of Now it's true. <laughs> Angry men near them. <laughs> so, so, you've got, so you've got this business where if you put a silicon chip in uh, a radiation environment, be that space or in a nuclear battlefield, they will stop working. And, and people don't worry about their, their machinery stopping working. Uh, you know, part of me thinks maybe we didn't have a nuclear war, not that they were worried about the um, the deaths, but you know they were slightly worried about their systems going down because <laughs> systems are possibly even more vulnerable than people right. in terms of reliability. And, and I know so- they talk quite a bit about solar flares as well being a possible thing that could, if we have a particularly bad one, could knock out key computers that run everything in our lives these days. Yeah, it's absolutely true. And you, and you, can't, you can't protect satellites because you've got to line them with lead. And of course, that's too heavy to to get them up there in the first place. On Earth, I think they're developing new semiconductor materials which are not as um, vulnerable to radiation, which is a worry because it might, might make them more tempted to press the button if they think they're going to get away with it. But but there, there is there is something dodgy about all research, science research, because although it'll get used by the good guys, it'll get used by the bad guys first. And so I know that there was a lot of military and space, which is kind of the same thing, um, interest in what I was doing. I worked out why and how this particular defect took place and I measured it and and it it was it was a very, very difficult practical experiment to do. I had to measure just a couple of atoms that were slightly off out of whack in this surface by by observing this tiny little dip in the current. So as a technical experiment, it really took years, especially because I did take sort of weeks off at a time doing comedy shows, <laughs> which, which really didn't help. But um but uh, yeah, uh, weirdly, because, you know, nuclear fission is what kind of can generate this stuff. I wanted to call it fission chips, <laughs> um, but they didn't go with that. So I called it defects in irradiated MOS structures. It's too good a joke for a science thing. Think, science uh, loves really, like, bad uh, jokes. Uh, yeah, I don't... One of the recurring themes that just pops up time and time again on this show is the number of incredibly contrived names and particularly incredibly contrived acronyms yeah. There's nothing scientists, particularly, I think, s- rocket and space scientists. It, NASA loves a absurd, clunky acronym. If there's any way that they can croak, they can change a satellite's name so that it spells out like sunshine and like the middle <laughs> I is like incorporated or like half the letter is silent. Yeah. They... Well, that's, that's interesting because... Um... Uh, one that everyone knows, CERN, C-E-R-N. Yes. But that's only an acronym in French, isn't it? No, Is it, it isn't. No, no, hang on. Hang on. So what's CERN? So Central European Research Nuclear... All right. Yeah, Research Nuclear. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Yeah, the Centre European Research Nuclear. Yeah, so, so that's... Yeah, so, in English it would be CENRA. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it kind of... There's something about um, stamping your own culture on it by giving it an acronym like that. Yes. Yeah, true. A solid French move. Oh, so French. Oh, so French. Oh, it's you know, so But it's CERN in France or Switzerland now. I'm trying to remember. Oh, I think it's both, isn't it? I think I mean, I, like the track goes underneath yeah. it because we we visited it on the way back from the gigs. By the way, I'm going off to these. I don't know when this comes out. Hopefully, hey, if we've got any listeners who are anywhere near Mirabel or Chamonix or any of those places, I'm going to be out there this coming week uh, doing some shows. But a few visits ago I was coming back with Eric Lampert another friend of the show and we forwent a day of skiing we have instead of going skiing in the morning we decided to set off a bit earlier and do a CERN trip <laughs> and it, it's great by the way I highly recommend it they've 
got uh, a lovely little museum there, including like the one of the first uh, particle accelerators. In fact, it might be the first one that was ever built. But they have their own little display case, which is about. I don't know. It's a, it's a it's about the size of a large dinner plate wow. compared to the one that's below you, which is about the size of a small town, wow. or a, actually probably a mid-sized town. My friend Laura Davis has a great thing about um, about certain about the fact that they're trying to stop time in Switzerland <laughs> when that's their only export <laughs> is watches. Laura Davis, you should look her up. She's very funny. She's an excellent comic. Oh, she's so she's good. good. Um, is she here now? She, based she is, yeah. She's based uh, based in London. If you are in London and booking anyone for gigs, try Laura Davis. She's one of the best comedians I know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny because what's great about science is it's universal. If you find something out about an electron, that's true of all the ones here and all the ones in other galaxies and all the ones in Mexico. So <laughs> I, do, I do, do a thing about President Trump thinking that American electrons are better than Mexican <laughs> electrons. <laughs> Um, and I think that science is quite nice to kind of put your finger on the, the stupidity of, uh, of right. uh, people. And also, American f- electrons are really easy to influence if you have enough bots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The trouble with electrons as well is you can't build anything, any walls that keep them out. So he's rounding up the Hispanic electrons because yeah. <laughs> they don't work as hard and put them into a Faraday cage. <laughs> <laughs> but of course the joke's on him because they all sit on the outside. <laughs> And he would never do that because you never get a, a photograph of Trump next to a Faraday cane. <laughs> the hair would give it away somewhat. Um, so, so I want to, I want to uh, drill down as much as possible into that. This the experiment that you spent four years sharing with your comedy career. Uh, so, what did you? What were you actually sort of firing them, or what were you? So I had a bunch of silicon chips. Yes, and. Uh, they were perfectly ordinary working ones. I had to degrade them in some way, so I did that in various ways. I went down to showed a... them some pornography. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, very. Yeah, <laughs> made them dance. <laughs> <laughs> made them watch the news. Um... <laughs> Clean my boots. <laughs> Clean my boots, chips. So there was a there's a place called the Fulmer Research Institute in Stoke Poges near Slough. Uh, which which was a co-sponsor of my PhD, and they had a, a huge radiation source with cobalt sixty. I think it was. Would that be alpha rays? Someone will let us know. Anyway, so so, so you take it, so you you put all the stuff on and put it into a little chamber and push it into this machine, expose it to radiation, or another way of of damaging the chips was to just put a big reverse current through them, and so the electrons would be moving so fast, even within the solid structure, it would kind of cause similar damage. So you've got a damaged chip, and then you try and work out the angle of the broken bond at the interface where trapped electrons get stuck. They stop flowing, they get stuck. And these, and you can trap electrons, and weirdly, you can trap holes, which are the lack of electrons, which is a weird concept that you can trap something that isn't there. And the other weird thing is, if you put them in a big magnet, and I'm talking a magnet that's half the size of a room that's got water going through it to cool it and all of that, you can actually make these trapped single electrons and holes stand up with their spins, either spin up or spin down. Right, so that's quite a, quite a feat. You've had to damage the thing, pass a current through, and uh-huh. some of the electrons, a very, very small fraction, like you're talking hundreds of electrons, really that small, are trapped. And you have to measure the way the current changes. So you fire microwaves at them, that's the new element, microwaves, and you fire the microwaves so that the difference between the spin-up electron and the spin-down electron in the magnetic field is exactly the same as the microwave frequency. So you get a resonance, electron spin resonance. But you do this in a tiny, tiny, tiny microscopic bit of one chip. And because of the current going through the chip while you're doing all this, you see a tiny flip in the current when the electrons that are trapped on the defects start spinning because you found their exact energy. So this little flip of current is, is 10 to the point thirteen zeros one of the current. It's a really tiny current. It amounts to a few hundred electrons, whereas, you know, there's 10 to the 19 electrons in an amp. So, so once you've got them damaged, electrons and holes trapped on the damaged bonds, magnetic field making them stand to attention, enter microwaves, flip them when it all works out, then you get your signal, which took me three years to measure. <laughs> but that was partly because I was, I was building my own... I was building my own... Um, my, Comedy my, my, you know, <laughs> Well, building a... Yeah, and, and building a, um, 
a resonator for the microwaves. Um, you know, out of copy, I, I sort of made all those things myself. Uh, and then, in a, and 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 the, the microwaves I was firing at it wasn't powerful enough. I had to get an amplifier. Once I got that bit of equipment, it all started working. Um, and then I tried it. I tried some other things. I tried it not with microwaves, but with radio waves. So I had to build a radio wave box to put the damaged silicon chips in, and then use a lower magnetic current, but still try and get the same uh, flip. That that is to say, when the microwave energy from quantum upstate to quantum downstate, when you when you fire exactly that energy of radiation on, they flip and they absorb energy, and that's what you measure. Right, that's fantastic. It, that's was, was that completely intractable? No, no, I, 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 I followed it, and I don't understand anything about anything. Okay. But, but it's just a few electrons in a box. But the weird thing is, this was all done at room temperature, um, and I was in a department called low temperature physics, which, as you would imagine, most of the people were doing experiments on superconducting uh, silicon layers and things. Uh, right, because once you once you get things down to really low temperatures within within a degree or so or even a fraction of a degree of absolute zero really bizarre things start to happen that's right, right. yeah and especially when you're in silicon chips when you've got very thin layers things are actually two-dimensional so you can have low temperature below liquid helium temperature uh two-dimensional systems which was the kind of thing they were investigating what, in that what does a two-dimensional system mean um it, it uh it, it doesn't have any height and so quantum mechanically that isn't even an option so the way that that particles behave. It's like graphene, you know. Right, it's you, just you, like it's a single one, layer, one but layer. it's just a... Yeah, it, it totally changes the physics. Um, now, that isn't my field, but the the interesting thing about um, trapping electrons in spin-up, spin-down states these days, especially at low temperature, is that's what's, that's what's in the gubbins of quantum computers. Now, my PhD <coughs> was using trapped electrons and measuring their interaction at room temperature uh, so I'm just hoping no one hears this and makes a room temperature quantum computer because <laughs> I think as soon as they make a quantum computer we are lost I mean look what look what social media and technology has done to our freedoms already quantum a uh, quantum computer well, will, will do they'll design new drugs they'll work out how to make nuclear fusion but before that the bad guys will get them well they because they they or not even the bad guys. Like the terrible thing is is the ways in which algorithms are shaping the ways that w- we think and interact and behave, without even intending to. Like mm. there's a thing where bots are more likely to say terrible things to women on Twitter because that incites more interaction. Right. A- as a bot, it's programmed to just get interaction. That's how it measures its success. That's the program of it. Machine learning algorithms saying all these different things to men, to women. Positive things to men get a certain amount of interaction. Positive things to women get a certain amount of interaction. The thing that you can guarantee will get a lot of interaction is telling a woman that you're going to slit her throat. <laughs> so there are robots. Mm. If I get above a certain number of Twitter followers, robots will tell me to kill myself. Right. And nobody meant for that to happen. Right. Like, it's it, bad enough if that's malicious. It was just that someone told this AI, get as many interactions as you can. Yes. And that person was not someone who had thought in advance, maybe I should build an extra little bit of code in there that says, but don't do it in a way that involves rape threats. Yes. But then it's like it's a beautiful part of human nature that they will go and defend a woman if she's attacked. That's part of... That's a nice thing that people will do. Right. <laughs> But what it is doing is we are now part of this program that is in a loop incentivizing robots to say horrendous shit to women online. Yeah. It's, it's strange how um, it's changed. When, when I first did my undergraduates, I was 77, there was a computer in Cambridge, which all the departments shared, I think, maths, physics. There was, there was one, I think, computer. And it was a big eye, and you had to, you had to punch cards. You had, you had a typewriter thing which literally punched the holes in cards. Then you stack the cards up and the cards would run through the card reader and that would be your Fortran program that would draw you a graph. Though you'd have to cycle two miles for the printout because the printer wasn't in that <laughs> building. Yeah. Seriously, that's what it happened. That's why physicists were fit. And I'm sure you were, you were talking about um, in that way, yeah. And, and you, <laughs> you were talking about at CERN where of course the, the, the web thing famously began. And in those days the only people that could use these newfangled machines to actually talk to each other or play silly, you know, guess the four letters game, you know, that, that's, and it was all on printouts like the old football results on the telly, it was teletypers, right. there were no screens. And, and, the, and the nerds that knew or could be bothered to 
deal these, do these clunky machines, they really were made very happy by it, I think, because they discovered other nerds, other nerds who th- knew they were weird and strange. Suddenly, this new thing called the internet that only they knew how to work, they discovered other nerds, and I think it really made them happy and feel part of something, and, 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 and I'd say the, the advantages were all positive at that stage. And as soon as a, a device came out, I don't know what it would be, the iPhone perhaps, where big redneck fingers could say, hey, there's other people <laughs> like me, elitist. and suddenly, and, and so it's when the people that weren't, weren't smart enough to maybe be nerds in the first place to be the early adopters, when 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 those people got together, they they could find oh there's other like minded people like but, me, but and we're all also, not very nice. But, but the then also, some of the nerdier people have ended up also being the biggest monsters because then there's really? like yeah. mm-hmm. then it's like oh look at these people encroaching on our territory where I was king. Mm. And, yeah, because uh, yeah. It, yeah, it, again, but, I I never know because it's it, because like you say there there are so many good things that have come out of. Uh, social media and, inter- and and interaction and like you say just the ability to find like-minded people well, across the some... world what, no matter what your interest is whether it's some, some nerdy interest or whether it's some kind of alternate sexuality or gender identity oh, that's or, great. or any kind of yeah. like weird band that you like and only one person per town likes but suddenly you have access to the one person in every town I think it's certainly them. the end of democracy <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> but, that, but that's the downside yeah. well, which well, is I... that you know democracy is the beautiful idea that everyone should have a say and then the internet brings you uh, the, the ability to see what everyone else is like you can't trust democracy if you know what people are like is, is it still de- de- democratic but the sad thing we have to acknowledge is that 52% of people are complete bastards <laughs> <laughs> in, in which case it is democracy all, 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 all this all the uh, paid for ads and bots have done is, is um, force people to vote maybe forcing people to vote which I believe is true in Australia you mm. have to vote. I mean, that's, that's a great... That, you have to pay a, well, it's not com- uh, compulsory. You have to pay $100 a penalty if you don't vote. Okay. But, well, it seems but that does mean that your turnout, I'm sure, is substantially higher than most other countries. Yes. I mean, no one knows whether, you know, the, the, the Brexit vote or the Trump vote were influenced by social media enough that uh, they really did change the result. I, it, it could be that it simply as we were saying, democratisation of this stuff. Now everyone can get in touch with each other, even if their common agenda is rather unpleasant. Maybe, maybe the, just the fact is that most people are unpleasant. Maybe it's that. <laughs> it, that would be horrible, wouldn't it? I mean, the punch card things with early computers is fascinating because I was told, and I, again, I have no proper backup for this, but I was told that came out of weaving, weaving machines. So that was, that was a kind of a woman, woman computer was figuring yep. out how you'd have these patterns for the for the looms that were right. exactly that punch cards, and you'd sl- slot them into the uh, side of the loom, and it would. Uh, yeah, and after that, there was um, a similar punch card system. Uh, individual cards all sort of connected in a snake, which which drove fairground organs and automatic piano, you know, self playing pianos. Oh, and, and then I've seen like the, the you know the self playing piano with the rolls with the punches. That means, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and then a lot of the you know, famously a lot of the early human calculators and computer programmers at NASA were women. Yes, it's, it, that is such such an interesting shift in in the understanding of computer programming from as it went from secretari- secretarial work, yeah. mechanistic work to high profile work and women moved out of it, men moved into it and and the ways in which that was seen as very natural work for women to be doing to now very unnatural work for women to be doing. Women aren't you know, minded for computers, that's not their domain. Right. Whereas a- actually the type of work didn't shift particularly, or the type of thinking didn't shift No, it shift was just entirely the way in which it was viewed. It's a vestige of the fact that women went into the typing school and typing pools. And so when machines required data putting in, none of the men had bothered to learn to type. So it was a vestige of that. <laughs> yeah. And then, so, because it wasn't just typing letters, it was typing data and information. That it, actually, that that became a great opportunity for women to move into more, um, you know, better paid and, and, and more interesting research jobs because simply because they were the ones at the time. And and then at some point, someone decided, oh, this is no longer weaving with yeah yeah know. yeah, no longer weaving in a big room. It's now this is clever brain work where we need to bring in the clever brain people, yeah. the, me- the men who are naturally better at math. There was a good Doctor Who the other the other week, where Doctor Who, the time travelling. Uh, Character meets the computer pioneers, you know, um, Ava Ludlace. Uh, oh, Ludlace. Ada Ludlace. Lab- <laughs> yes, and um, Babbage. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is lovely, very good, lots of good 
lots of good um, points being made there. So you had uh, so what was the conclusion of your of the PhD? Like, what did you? Or well, I did toy with with a short version, of, you know, because it was about radiation effects in silicon right. devices. Uh, it buggers them. Would have been the answer. Next um, PhD hammers effects. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. I mean, people knew that the, the the devices in space and in radiation environments were failing. Right. The particular broken bond that was thought to be responsible was the one that I kind of measured and got the angle of it and all of that. Um, and I think the technique of using trapped electrons on those broken bonds in a magnetic field, microwaves coming in, resonance experiment, um, you, you can get a lot of information from the, the particular conditions under which it resonates, the energy of the thing. So I think it, it kind of um, it helped people use that diagnostic tool right. in other uh, situations because you're actually looking at a working device you're actually looking at a real device on a chip a tiny thing and you're getting signals from it it's not like you're doing uh, radiation damage on the on the source materials or anything like that it's it's actually the finished product right you're actually seeing the current running through and you're seeing the blip in current yeah, the different yeah and you're seeing the degrading you're seeing that the degrade that the radiation is produced you can see what it, how in it's real been time. affected um, I think I think there might be other room temperature applications for trapping electrons and holes and using those spins. Maybe a computational way. Maybe that's not possible because of because of the higher temperature. Maybe there's other noise going on, and that might kind of um, hide what you're trying to actually do quantum mechanically. But I did my papers. My paper, I had a few papers published in the uh, scientific journals, which is always good fun, especially because I didn't actually have to write them. Some of my um, my supervisor. Uh, he, uh, um, he was Dr. Pepper. Uh, but really, <laughs> the famous Dr. Pepper. Well, no, but it was before Dr. Pepper was a product to it. So that, <laughs> and then when that happened, he was Professor Pepper. So he never quite avoided that one. But he was also brilliantly... Um... Unlike Colonel Mustard, who was... <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, I've had a lot of accusations about him. Um, um, but uh, Ben Miller. Yes. Um the... I do mean Ben Miller, don't I? Yeah, the yeah. Of Armstrong and Miller yeah, com- exactly. comedy double act. Well, he weirdly was also, and he's also an amazingly talented scientist and, 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 and so on, uh, he, we had the same supervisor. Mike Pepper was also his supervisor. Because I, I, I remember... Yeah, because... Uh, but unlike you, he... I believe he never finished his PhD. I, I he don't got know if he has. Well, he, well, he's written books about science, so he's done more than I ever have. No, he, he's a brilliant scientist, brilliant but, science communicator. Yeah, and I think... But, yeah, I think he... Because he, um, also, there was a bit more... There was more of a comedy scene by the time he was coming through university, so I think he's like they started to get a bit of telly, and then he just left to. Uh... Well, he happens to be an extremely good actor, an extremely good writer mm-hmm. and comedian, so that would have taken all of his time, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> no, but he's, I'm sure he could, um, in the way that, that Brian May did in later years. I'm sure he could just tidy it all up and send it in and, and get the qualification if he hasn't already. And I, I, don't, I don't think that's an important distinction that that you know, so so and so wrote up and so and so didn't. Uh, he went through it. He, he really is the real McCoy. He knows his stuff. He knows his science. He's someone that you'd love to talk to on this. I'm sure. I will. We should try and track him down. And yeah. Brian May's the other. That's the that's on the wish list. Yeah, he's well, on the. Well, he, I, I believe he actually is now a proper doctor because he did he did no, write the stuff. He up. absolutely did. Yeah, yeah, he went he went back to university thirty years after leaving and <laughs> got got the PhD, got yeah. the hat and the gown and everything. Now he's Doctor Brian May. Well, I mean, I mean, when I when I left Cambridge and, and had that brief research science job at Oxford I, I did get it put on my credit card because I was working in academia for a very brief time before I realised it wasn't for me and um, and I still have it on the card and although at the time it was a bit of a show off thing it, it, it's of no use to me now I, I don't I don't claim to be a doctor if, if an announcement comes over on the plane is there a doctor I don't <laughs> yeah. do that but weirdly it has recently come up useful when people ask me what pronoun I want to use and um, uh, and in terms of pronoun use, it's pretty handy. It avoids all the you know all issues of sexuality. Actually, doctor. Yeah. 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 So, just doctor, Call yeah, me doctor. It, yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it it covers that one. So if if I'm in very sensitive situations where people are using pro- pronouns almost as a threat, if you get one wrong, you're out. You know, so I, I, it's it's a good one to be able to pull out the bag. Is uh, a <laughs> 
Have you ever got... I, I heard tales of people in the past that are getting bumped up on planes or getting nicer treatment in hotels because they have a doctor on the card. Yeah, and also people who've been uh, taken to small rooms for interrogation at customs because they kind of say, are you a medical doctor? No. What are you a doctor of? The people can be suspicious of you too. Right. Okay. Interesting. Are you a doctor of uh, radiation? Okay. Come with us, sir. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm good at firing radioactive material at things. Okay. Mm. I mean, it's, it's never happened to me, but, but you do hear, uh, you know, that... It, Academics and people are under suspicion in certain parts of the world. Right. Yes. Now, weirdly, including America, mm. which is not what you want to hear. Uh-huh. Just because you. But I, I, I would definitely. I would put doctor on my credit card if I. Just because you know, even if you were doing it simultaneously with a comedy, a burgeoning comedy career, the amount of time, effort, and like you know, you put the from work you in. Yeah. You got. You put the work in, you got the certificate, you got the... You should... You you should be... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, pe- people put, you know, sir on when they get honours, don't they? Or the right honourable, or... You know, the honourable. When yeah. They, when, when it's... When you're married to... Is that when you're married to a... But also, I would... You know, I'd say th- those ones are... Those ones are, cert- are, are less valid than... You well, know, you... a PhD, where someone's really... You know, you... Done the work. Rather than ne- potentially just been friends with someone important or or someone that they wanted to hush up or just like get out of the way yeah that, you're so, a I mean, now. the honor system strange because you know when, when someone's just given money to a party to get them elected you know with dodgy yes and then it's like and, for and, and, charitable and, and, work yeah exactly that's wrong but there are lots of other really good hard-working generous selfless ordinary people that do get those honors and I don't want to make them feel bad about their honours, so I, I, I actually do pull back from slagging off the, yeah. the dodgy ones. I just always feel it's a shame that, like, their honour for sort of, you know, running a soup kitchen for 30 years is tainted by the fact they have to share it with Ian Duncan Smith. Yeah, <laughs> it's quite a shame, isn't it? <laughs> but, that really, yeah, but that's that really weird sort of, in, in this country, this aspirational thing. Oh, goodness me, then Tories all seem to be very rich and successful don't they maybe if I vote Tory I'll be like that it's, uh-huh. it, it's just I what think it that's, kind of weird that's a worldwide thing I mean yeah. it's an unfortunate side effect of the degradation of the class system people yeah. think that they can be <laughs> mm. can hop over yeah. um, so what were, were the various papers that were published or co-authored by you mm. although you with Dr. Slash Professor Pepper doing oh, yeah, well, yeah Mike Pepper and uh, Brian Henderson was the other guy that, okay. uh, that was my other supervisor. So actually, I think he did the work of writing them up, and uh, and, and it was really good that he did that because I, I would never have had time to do it. And I think or really were, the knowledge or ability to do it in the same way that someone who's you know an established it, academic would. Yeah, but it was just after the research. It, right. it came out like a year or two after, so I was still match fit with the jargon at that time. But but, but, they but then did even it. even things like I'm sure you need a fair amount of your first paper, and I know we have listeners who have published multiple papers, but I'm sure particularly the first one or two you need someone who is an experienced person a supervisor who just knows the like the correct formatting and the 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 syntax of academic publishing yeah the, 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 there are there are definitely um conventions uh, conventions if i to write yeah that weirdly doing my research i actually i actually was i was a one of those peers that was a peer reviewer of other people's papers so okay so i, I so i've i've done it from the other side of, of looking at other people's work and i think it all i found was one typo which is yeah, pretty good but i I kind of felt I had to find something to prove I'd read it and knew what it was on about. <laughs> but uh, that was quite exciting, doing. In, in a sense, it was as exciting as, as having one published myself. And also, I didn't know they were doing it. So when so when it came up in a in a search, I was I was pleased to have my name on a on a paper. Oh, that's that's very and, cool. And it's, and it's still cited. You can look up sightings of your stuff. So that makes me think that people maybe are getting back into looking at these defects or the way that spins are trapped on them. Perhaps it's a quantum a quantum computer. I- Thing I don't know, and that also does go to the what you were saying earlier on in this episode, where you know, electron is the same here that it is in Mexico, that it is on Mars, that it is on Alpha Centauri, and so on. Uh, something that has been shown experimentally in science is still relevant until such a time as another experiment comes out that disproves it or or replaces it. But you know, if your findings are correct, then. You know, other things might might have been built on top, but people will still be looking at that and citing it if they're, or at the very least, reading your article if they're researching specifically in these grounds. You if know, they like, have oh, any don't. intellectual rigor. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I did. I mean, I didn't discover anything fundamental about any fundamental part of physics. What I did do was prove that a technique could be used to look at these things. So I think it would have helped researchers 
maybe tackle it, it, it experimentally right. would have given them a, a, a window of opportunity that I'm, these experiments work you know? I'm super fascinated by the ways in which science is shaped by the tools that are available because you know the, 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 I guess the, the ideal of science is that it is guided by a, a, a search for knowledge right. but the reality is you know, for example they found out now that cats can smell cancer Right? I, I missed that story. But the only way we know to measure or understand cancer is by you know, looking at it, because that's what we're good at. But we sh- maybe we should have been looking at smelling tools. We just don't have smelling tools. So a lot of... A lot of I'm, I'm saying this badly. A lot of things in science are about looking at stuff. Right. Because that's the technology we have that we're very good at. Well, they only noticed more... that because they, could, they spotted the cat sniffing between about mid-June and mid-July. <laughs> <laughs> Solid. But this idea that you know you 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 use the tools that are at your disposal. You're absolutely right. For example, um, you know Cambridge and other other universities, but um, discovery of the cathode rays—the fact that electrons can go through space—which um, this was discovered because people were passing currents through vacuums, but the good vacuums were only in the labs where they had a really good. Um, technician who was good at glass blowing and sealing and it was totally down to how good your vacuum was is to how much research you could possibly do yes and, and, and it the, was some tech bloke who probably his name isn't even remembered in the way that someone like you know thompson or some great you know electron scientist would be remembered but it was down to them and if that bloke hadn't had that skill right just someone they stole who was doing a vase <laughs> yesterday and is now instead well, just doing a cathode ray tube and like well he's got he's really good on the glass blowing and well, that's why our lab has got to the t- Invented the TV before anyone else did. Well, yeah, kind of, kind of, because without that vacuum, you couldn't get it, you wouldn't see it, you wouldn't know it, and and also, you know, p- people seeing that um, on some of these sort of discharge tubes that there was dirt and muck, and the first thing I was doing was just grab it, throw that one out, and then and then someone said, well, why is there dirt and muck? And that's because there were these things we don't know about called electronics. So there's that too of, of looking at what's wrong and seeing why it is. Um, and then things like uh, the the cholesterol stuff with heart disease because they were just quite good at measuring cholesterol. They're like, that is the most important thing when it comes to heart disease. And actually, it's a more complicated question than that and depends what kind of cholesterol and that may, may not be the best marker of your... Mm. All of that stuff is like, so the, interesting. The, um, the, 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 the workshop, you know, the, the, the lathes, the milling machines, the drills, all those things you get in a science or an engineering lab in the basement normally. Now, that is the place I worked. I left school, I was quite young, and I worked for a year before going to university, and I worked at the Bristol University engineering workshops, and that's when I learned to make things out of metal and copper and lathes and milling machines, and all that, which is why when it came to it years later, making these resonators for my microwaves and radio waves, I could do it. Mm. But even then, I needed the help of the Cavendish Laboratory workshop people. But these were the you know, kind of descendants of those workshop people a hundred years before who had been the people that blew the glass who were the people that had made all that possible and even in my day you go in you, you know you speak to your professors and you speak to your supervisors and all that stuff but actually having a word with the bloke in the lab about how you can possibly get this to work he knows because he's worked with people for all his life making little things and uh, if you put that screw there it stops the radio waves. these the expertise of those people is amazing i'm sure it's still the case a great experience to have had in, in my year that's on. very interesting and also just getting to what uh, you just remind me of um quite an early episode and i'm my shame i can't remember which uh who the expert was but it was an early live episode we did about four or five years ago that I, I hosted without Andy when I was out of town it was a neuroscientist and he was talking about how uh, we think of the brain as being like a computer but that's just because that's the most recent type of technology we have so pe- people's model for the brain at any given time in history is essentially it's like this thing, the most recent. So, like back in the day, we'd be like, "Oh, it's like cogs," and then well, it's a like later, a little it's like man this, sitting in your like brain, homunculus. Right. Exactly. So, so, know, the, so the brain, the brain is actually the brain is a podcast, right? Exactly. Just this, whatever the most recent thing is. I have these most... arguments so regularly with the people, and they're very smart people who I know who talk about the fact that the world might be a simulation, because. It could be a simulation, because if it were a simulation, then, you know, you could have all these different universes that were all mm-hmm. being done in different, slightly different ways, and we could just be one uh, manifestation of a simulation that was propagating itself through kind of artificial intelligence and, and machine learning. 
and you go, but this is the same as the homunculus. This is the same as the idea that your brain is a tiny man inside your head. <laughs> you know, like, it's, it's not that it couldn't be. It's that you just think it is because that's the technology that you're wrestling with at the moment to conceptualize the world. Right. Yeah. I, so, I get so angry when I have that so, argument. <laughs> so what? I, I'm so old that the, the little bloke driving my brain doesn't even have to have a seatbelt. <laughs> He's drinking still, but he's, he's fine because he's experienced in it. So. <laughs> um, he's, he's better drunk than most little men in the yeah. brain are sober. That's how... <laughs> um, that, the, the, the numbskulls. I remember that. that. cartoon strip from years ago. Was that Beano or Dandy? Yeah, one of, those one ones. of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, so you, you then, did before, after your PhD, you said you then worked, you still worked in a lab for a, a year or two in lecture. Electrical yeah. engineering level. So from autumn eighty four until summer of eighty five, uh-huh. I was I was offered a fellowship, um, St John's College Oxford, and I've been at Cambridge. I mean, you don't get offered those, and I said, "Oh, all right, yeah, I'll do that then." You kind of yeah. do. Uh, um, get the and, other one and, on my CV. Yeah, and so I did it. But then I was still doing double acutaneous slattery. I had to stop working with the amazing, talented Millies because I suddenly had kind of. You know, formal dinners to go to, and 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 the, oh, the Millies went off to New York. There was a time when Virgin Atlantic began in the early eighties, where one of the gimmicks of the new airline was all the comedy was live, oh. all the alternative comedy acts, and there weren't that many on the circuit in the early eighties. Would go, you do a few minutes in each cabin. Blimey! Then you go. Then you have. Oh, that sounds like a potentially horrendous. Well, you'd have a couple of days. Yeah, a couple of days in New York, and then you get a flight back. But often there'd be quite a few different acts on the flight back, so only one of them would have to do it. Okay. And it'd be a night flight anyway. So, so I mean, I never got to do it because the Millies did it without me, which is a shame. Though in fact they did it. Uh, they actually did it when the BBC Mike Smith was filmed it for that thing Friday people don't know whatever but anyway so a couple of gigs happened and, and not going to Australia with, with Tony because we were offered Australia and we never went I've still never been and I suddenly thought hang on I know it's nice to have it's this job it's a nice job, place when it's not but, on fire oh, I bet it is yeah. thoroughly lovely well, people probably more go. proportionately more listeners in Australia to this podcast than any other country <laughs> we do love our Australians <laughs> well, our Australian well, listeners well, I, hope I mean from, from here it, it looks really anywhere bad anywhere to anywhere and, and yeah. you've got to listen to something in the car yeah. sorry carry no, on no I'm just saying I mean from here it looks really bad but then I meet people abroad that that say, God, how can you live in London with all that violence? And of course, they're just seeing yeah. the news. I'm, I'm hoping that it's exaggerated, but well, it no, does it's, look it's bad. Pretty, from what the, I've seen. The, I think the fires are very bad right no, now. If, and I, yeah, and I say that as someone who lives in California, where every year it, but it, it, there's a week or two where there's you can smell smoke in your living room and so yeah, on. But it's I, worse I was in there, Sydney right now. I was, I was in Australia in November, and it's pretty bad. And I know mm. a number of people who've lost their houses. And oh, I'm so sorry. And, and animals, I have a friend who is on a farm and the fires passed through their property, missed the main house, so no one was, no person was injured, and but they lost two thirds of the property. And uh, now she and her family, which is a family of five, have to figure out how to dispose of 800 dead cows. Fucking hell. Oh, dear. And you've got a prime minister who's waving a lump of coal in parliament. Yeah, well, and you certainly about... can't burn them. <laughs> yeah. And the roads are all shut down at the moment, so they're not sure what they're going to do. Oh dear. Uh, but to, uh, so I, I was talking about the, the two, two events. One was New York, another one was um, Australia. And I had to miss out on those because I couldn't just nip off and leave everything. Right. And there was a time, well, it was Halloween 84, I remember it specifically, because me and Tony Stattery had a, a late night gig in Bristol. On the Thekla, which was a theatre boat that was Vivian Stanshaw's boat. At that time, he was living on the boat, Viv Stanshaw from the Bonzo Dog. So, me and Tony did a late night Halloween show for them on, on Halloween of 84. <laughs> and we actually stayed on the boat with Viv and had a seance with him and, and, and his wife because the, the, the boat was haunted. So, that was just one of the most amazing experiences ever. But earlier that evening, I think I'd done a show with the Millies in London. And then driven down the M4. So I was doing this train, driving to London, doing a show, driving to Bristol, doing another show, driving back to Oxford in the morning. And I was kind of falling asleep at the wheel. And I thought, okay, I cannot keep trying to get these two things apart. One's got to go. So on the 30th of June, 85, I resigned and moved to London and uh, never regretted it. So so what were you... I'm just now picturing, like, young Richard Ranch in, in the research lab in Oxford... Working, surrounded by all these physicists, knowing that 
12 hours earlier you were doing a seance with Viv Stanshall. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was bizarre. I mean, I'll be honest, I actually didn't achieve much in Oxford. Firstly... I was um, thought you were going to say I didn't achieve much in the seance. <laughs> oh, well, no, this, yeah, the seance was interesting. Um, <clears throat> I was still writing up my PhD, and of course doing the research and collecting it all is one thing, writing it up is another, and it took me through half of that period at Oxford, they said, look, we know you haven't finished it, you've got to finish it, just go into a room and do it. So I wasn't actually doing any research in Oxford. I never got round to doing any. I, I suggested a few projects for PhD students using some of the techniques I knew would work experimentally, and I think they that seeded a few interesting projects. Mm-hmm. But, right. but I hadn't actually rolled my sleeves up and, and gone into a lab before I resigned. And I'm sure it was a big disappointment to them because they'd invested in me and trusted in me. But I was right not to be there. I mean... I, I think the next I, I was 25 or something the next youngest one was probably 80 um, right. but I had some good experiences <laughs> I, I, I kind of signed in as an Oxford Dom at a very very low key ceremony I find the more the more prestigious the institution the more simple the ceremonies <laughs> you, you look at some university and graduation day it's you know there's bands and bells and whistles and all sorts of things going on but Ox- like, congratulations Dr Richards what, what do you want <laughs> to that so this is called John oh I, I'm John I'm the master of the college will you come up and have a have a sherry and sign this thing so I did and he was terribly nice and I sort of hadn't done my research and I discovered later he had a Nobel Prize <laughs> this, this was Sir John Kendrick who I think he'd in the late 50s he'd he'd determined the structure of haemoglobin or something and it was this wonderfully modest lovely man and, and you wouldn't know that he had a Nobel Prize in, in all this business so if I got a Nobel Prize I'd wear it as a hat well yeah I'd, I'd have that on my credit card if you can but, but uh, wearing an ask me about my Nobel Prize t-shirt <laughs> so I could just dropping it in every conversation yeah it's like uh, that time I was in Norway <laughs> so I came up with a thing called... Norway or Sweden have I fucked up on that one <laughs> wait wait where was Nobel he Swedish? was Norway? Swedish wasn't he Norway? Norway Swedish god I should know that Okay. Well, I'm sure it's, I'm, I can hear. Someone that. Google. I can, someone I can, shouted at their radio. Yeah. <laughs> I want to hear about the the seance now. Oh that, well. What's the science of a seance? Uh, there isn't much science to a seance, but it was a very interesting uh, experience. Uh, how to... is one boat any more or less haunted than any other boat? I think all boats are haunted by well, what I could have been. <laughs> sailors had, I think, died on it. Oh, sailors had died. Yeah, they will do that, sailors. That. But um, yeah, so, but Kendry was a lovely guy, and, and and there was a weird thing where we'd go to the um, we'd go to our formal dinner, mm. but all the undergraduates had to stand until the fellows and staff sort of came in and warmed their bums by the fire, and then sat down. And I found that really weird because I don't come from a very posh background, and the Oxbridge kind of um, privilege and and traditions really freaked me out, and I was never happy with them. I felt always felt happier at those institutions when I was hanging out with the comedy and theatre people because mm. they didn't care, you know, and, and that's why I fell in with those really. But um, but there was one weird thing. Uh, obviously, I had access to the, the fellows, you know, the senior common room at, at St John's Oxford, uh, and it was very stuffy and it was, you know, oak panelled and sherry and afternoon tea and all Just that. Just very stuff. quickly jumping in, it is Sweden. I was wrong first and then I was correct and then really? I was wrong again. But I was reading that, you know, the the book... And that's science. That's science. <laughs> that's science. <laughs> I love well, it. We don't normally do the catchphrase until the end of the episode, but that's fine, Alex. Here. This is your first time as a visual co-host. <laughs> I was reading that book, um, His Dark Materials, the uh, oh, yeah. Philip Pullman, which has recently yeah. been an excellent uh, television adaptation. And reading that book, I it was really weird, because the first bit of the book is Lara... Kind of hiding in the in the fellows' common room, listening to listening to the grown ups speaking, and, and there was something Jordan weirdly College. Jordan College, yeah. And I discovered afterwards, it's Lyra as well. Space. While we're doing collection yeah. corrections, I think is it Lyra? Sorry, yeah. pardon me. Sorry, um, uh, it's all right. I was already wrong about the Nobel Prize. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more wrong. Arguably, one is more important than the other. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we all know which I mean, it is. It's a TV show and a book. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I found I found the description of this room in the book really unsettlingly familiar. And I discovered afterwards he'd based it on the senior common room at St John's. Ah. So I did know the room. Oh, that's nice. I had sort that of means been... he's a good writer. Well, it, does, it means he's a good writer. I also identified her with feeling far too young to be in this room by about 50 years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was weird. It was weird. And, and, and just being there, Oxford is, is a beautiful city and there's a big wide street called St Giles, which is kind of a big wide street back St John's. And there's a lovely circuit in Judges House called St Giles House behind Reynolds. That's where I lived. And it was just utterly ridiculous privilege handed on a plate 
and all I wanted to do was go out and write sketches. And... <laughs> right. So I did. Oh, it seems like a long time ago now, and it was only 35 years. <laughs> but, <laughs> that, that, I think that seems like a beautiful part, uh, place to wrap it up. But, um, but this has been such a joy. It's been so, it was so lovely catching up with you, but also just hearing about... I mean, we never talk about this stuff when we hang out at, in a mess at a Glastonbury field at three in the morning. It's... Uh, <laughs> um, Richard, first, where can our listeners find out about or find you and find shows you're doing? You're always down with the Comedy Store Players every Sunday still. and Yeah, we do the Comedy Store Players improv show uh, Wednesday and Sunday in London. And I do a few other bits and pieces. And um, the website is, is just richardvranch.com. And I try to update it when I remember. And you might be up at this Edinburgh with uh, stand-up as well. And... Yeah, I might be doing a bit of stand-up. Um, oh. Certainly going up improvising with Mike McShane and Paul Merton, Suki Webster and Lee Simpson with Kirsty Newton at the piano. What a and terrible bunch of fun. humans. It'll be fun. What, a, what an appalling company. <laughs> I, I'm disappointed that I haven't heard about the seance, but I'm going to wait until you die and then ask you about it. Okay. <laughs> we, should, <laughs> we should yeah, grab Nab Richard for tea with Alice and yeah. talk seances for yeah. an hour. We should. Probably seance. <laughs> oh. <laughs> It was just sitting there for 20 minutes. <laughs> God damn you, Richard. And that's seance. <laughs> See, I was going to say Alice. that and then I decided not to. Alice, where can our <laughs> listeners find you as well? You can find me on patreon.com slash Alice Fraser. You can find me on Tea with Alice, which is my weekly podcast. I regularly co-host The Bugle. I have a trilogy of my stand-up shows for free, which you just right in the Alice Fraser trilogy and I'm doing a daily podcast I mean I'm putting out a daily podcast from another dimension called The Last Post which has been again once more not produced by you but by the other Alice Fraser <laughs> yes, so it sounds like you're doing a ludicrous amount of work here and incredibly busy but actually but actually I'm very relaxed and I'm just writing the quantum coattails of the much more hard working <laughs> Alice Fraser <laughs> uh, we are at uh, probablyscience.com on Twitter at probablyscience uh, individually at Matt Kirshen and at Andy T. Wood for my co-host who is not with me for this episode. Okay. I know. Screw that, Andy, for not flying over <laughs> for this one recording. Um, uh, Facebook slash probably science, probably science at gmail.com for any questions, comments, clarifications, stories you'd like us to cover, and all that good stuff. Thank you again so much, Richard Ranch and Alice Fraser. Yay. Thank you. Thank me. And that's science. <laughs>